Welcome to So Many Bits. I'm your host, Bill Nielsen, and this week we're going to be doing a special deep dive into the recent visual novel slash tower defense slash absolute mystery cluster, uh, 13 Sentinels, Aegis Rim. Uh, the first mystery we're going to solve is, is it Aegis or is it Aegis? I never know. Uh, so joining me, though, for this week's spoiler discussion, I've got two special guests. First of all, I've got Joe Cannellan. Joe has been playing games for over 30 years and been involved with the games industry for the last five, and this is his first time on the podcast. So thank you very much, Joe. Thank you for having me. And next up, we've got Luis Padillo. Luis is a Chicago-based comedian who's been on before and also a features contributor for American Voices and headline contributor for OGN. So thanks, Luis. That's right. It's good to be back. This is my triumphant return. And since then, yeah, I, I started working for The Onion doing their American Voices and OGN stuff. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be back, man. It's exciting. Yeah, I'm excited because, I mean, like with this game, I, I finished it up a couple weeks ago and I loved it the whole time. I was sad to see it go basically when it ended. Even afterward, I still had so many lingering questions and like trying to like unravel everything about this game. So I'm hoping that we can take this time to really dig into it. Uh, If you're listening and you haven't already played the game, this introductory segment will be relatively spoiler light. Afterward, we're going to get really, really deep into like everything about the plot of this game. So if you are on the fence, I would say that if I had played this game in 2020, that would have been my favorite game from that year. Uh, So go out and play it and then come back and listen to this. But otherwise, if you are like us and trying to figure out a little bit more about what happened... Uh, first off, we're just going to start by like asking guys that we'll start with uh, you, Joe, and then go to you, Luis. Uh, how did you find out about 13 Sentinels and what do you know about it beforehand? I found out about 13 Sentinels. Um, I think it was an E3 from maybe maybe 2019, 2018. And I forget exactly when it was revealed, but I remember a Vanillaware game being talked about. I remember thinking about Vanillaware games as those beautiful games that I play about two hours of and then never finish. And so when I looked at this, I'm like, this looks like another one of those games that I will play a little bit of and never finish. Um, and then when it finally came out, uh, I heard a lot about it from various podcasts I, I, I listened to. And people were just kind of going nuts about it and just just sort of talking about how crazy the story was and, and couldn't talk about it either. Um, and at a time, like, I, I didn't really know, like, it, it just seems like so, like, mysterious the way people were talking about it. Um, and how they couldn't talk about it. And now after t- now after playing it, I was like, oh, I, I see exactly what they're talking about. Um, because it isn't really anything you can talk much about um, beforehand without giving away a lot. Even even if you go into it, like, the, the, the basics I knew about it was it had mechs and it had time travel. And it had, like, high school high school kids in it. Um, and that was about it. And, and even, like, the time travel bit is is... Maybe a bit of a, not a massive spoiler, but um, it like I said, it's so hard to talk about this game in any way without giving away major po- major points of the plot line. So that always intrigued me, but I just never really got around to it until some, some time in my schedule freed up earlier in 2021. And boy, was it a, was it a ride. You know, like you said, I, I just couldn't, at a certain point, I couldn't put it down. I have many, many late nights where 
I'm like, you know, I'm just going to play another hour of this to unlock a little bit more of the storyline. And before I knew it, it was like 3 a.m. I'm like, oh, damn it. <laughs> you know, so. But yeah, that was sort of my intro to the game. Yeah, I think I had a, a, a pretty, uh, let's say, similar experience because I do listen to a lot of gaming podcasts outside of so many bits. Sorry, Bill. But like, I also have a certain subset of podcast hosts that I know t- their tastes align with mine. Uh, so I had not heard about 13 Sentinels that much beforehand. I just heard, A, it's an anime game. B, it got mechs. That's about it. And also that it had a crazy story. I am kind of on the other side of this spoiler fence. I don't believe there's any one detail in this game that will spoil the game. Because every aspect of this game is spoilers. There's some sort of crazy epiphany happening every hour. So I, I think we can we can safely talk about it in this podcast and not like spoil the experience for a user. But yeah, there's all sorts of sci-fi stuff happening in this game. And uh, hearing that attracted me to it. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm basically in the same boat here. Like, I guess uh, I can't remember exactly when I heard about it, but as like, I think what actually happened is I went to the Wikipedia page for Odin Sphere just on a whim. And I went back, went to the bottom of the page where it says, you know, like works by Vanillaware. And I saw one I hadn't heard of before, 13 Sentinels. And like, this was like back when it just had been announced. So like I clicked on it and it's like, oh, they're making a mech game. The, the company that makes like these really cool action RPGs and beat em ups is going to make a mech game. Yeah, that's awesome. And then I didn't hear anything about it for a long time. Like uh, I would Google it occasionally and it's like, oh, the Vita version got canceled oh, no one really knows anything about it. And I can never figure out what it was about. And I don't think we're alone in that because it doesn't seem like Sega or anyone knows how to like show a slice of this game. Because like if you look at the trailers, like there are little trailer videos. I mean, Joe, you said you saw the E3 one. It's just like the kids running around in the school. Like they don't really show anything about the game or any like major plot elements. I think because of the apprehension of giving too much away. And, you know, uh, I, I, re- I read a little bit about this, like just the initial sales for the game were very sluggish because of that. Like people just didn't know what to expect. And in like over time, word of mouth has accelerated. So like, I think earlier this year, they passed 300,000 units sold. And then like in March, they passed 400,000 units. So it's picking, it's actually picking up speed several months after release, pretty uncommon for most games. And, yeah, I don't envy who's whoever's job it was to like market this game because like we're 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 all gamers here. We all we're all in in the know. And if I told you this game is a anime visual novel intercut with mech style RTS elements, like that, I think that communicates what the moment to moment gameplay is pretty effectively. But like, how do you show that to a whole bunch of people? Like, and make them want to buy the game, right? So I, I, I'm really glad to hear that this word of mouth has, uh, you know, gotten the, the game sales up uh, because I think it's an incredibly well-made game. It's it's a good visual novel and it's a good-ish RTS. We'll, we'll get to add that in a bit. But yeah, it's, uh, it, it's incredibly rare to see a game like not have its best sales in its first week of release, right? I had heard that they had no idea how to market this in the West. So that's incredibly encouraging to hear. 
It's a it's a mech game where you don't want to play the mech parts about it. <laughs> that, that, maybe maybe you perfect, don't. Yeah. <laughs> I, I I came around to it in, in the end, and you know, like you said, we'll cover off that later. But like towards yeah. the beginning, I'm like, forget this mech part. I just want to get more into the story. Um, you know, as, as you both have said, it was, it's a game that like to me, when seeing the marketing, was just like it, it was marketed as that as like a mech RTS. And to have that sort of be almost like a, a side to the rest of the game, I thought was was, was really uh, was really interesting. Yeah, I I have to agree. The, the mech part of the, the mech RTS part of this game is not, by far not its best feature. Like it's fun, and like you, I I warmed up to it uh, for reasons we'll probably talk about in a bit. But the part of this game where it's a visual novel and it's also like. If you had told me to make a video game, but make it every anime I've ever seen, <laughs> that that's what this game is, uh, because it it takes like all these anime tropes uh, that you just kind of take for granted, right? Like the milk toast protagonist, the kind of shy, um, like love interest, um, like the standoffish, like delinquent types. Like it takes all those you know, uh, uh, conventions of anime and gives them purpose in a story that I haven't seen before. And that's definitely the most interesting part of this game. The way it plays with what what is typically not just anime narrative, but like Japanese style narrative. And like really just makes you reconsider why some of these elements should be in a piece of fiction. Yeah, if you start thinking about the the influences, if we start mentioning them, like even that gives some of the game away, but I'll do it anyway. Like, you know, E.T., very obvious homage there. Uh, Mm. They mention Arthur C. Clarke pretty uh, directly. Uh, I was really surprised with uh, Yuki's, uh, Yuki Takamiya, her her storyline, like I figured it was, you know, like based on something, but no, it's literally based on this anime, Sukuban Deka, that was popular in like the 70s and 80s. Um, and I, I, again, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but the uh, main character, Juro, like he's clearly into like sci-fi fiction, right? Uh, so much to the point where like he's constantly talking about movies and television shows that he really enjoys. You know, again, that's that's a trope in most anime, like the, the dorky kid that's that can only speak in like movie or sci-fi references. But at like maybe 30 hours into the game, 20 hours into the game, like they sort of reveal, no, there's a reason why he is constantly consuming and talking about this media. And it's shocking what they'll do. And again, this is the spoiler free part. So I won't talk about it. We should probably move on to the, 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 yeah. the structured part of this <laughs> because I'm, I'm dying to, I'm dying to talk about why this kid loves anime and sci-fi so much. Well, sure. Yeah. Let's uh, yeah. We'll just wrap it up with it. Like, if you like homages to 80s anime and sci-fi, if you like uh, mechs, if you like uh, visual novels, and, or you just want to like unravel a really big mystery, uh, stop this recording, uh, go get 13 Sentinels. Like you can sometimes find it on sale with GameStop for 30 bucks, and like I think literally right now it's on sale with the PlayStation Store for like 36 bucks or something like that. Yeah, hot tip. Uh, I bought my copy of. 13 sentinels off of a gamestop anime game sale and they classify that as an anime game and you know i tend to agree 
now that I've played it, yes, that game is very anime, but they have like at least one of those sales every one one or two months. So that that's where you should pick it up, in my opinion. Well, yeah, but you, I think you make a good point that we've probably exhausted how much we can talk about this game without digging any deeper. So yeah, let's let's move into it. Let's talk about the plot of this game and do it. I don't know that we can do it, Luis. <laughs> I, where do you where do you begin? I'm so uh, yeah. Where, yeah, that's a good point, Joe. Where where do we even start? I have no idea. We can talk about the game in chronological order basically up to the point where the 13 protagonists enter because that is fairly linear and then like with the 13 protags like they're all like intersecting and like bouncing off each other so much that it kind of breaks down and it's not really easy to keep track of them anymore uh we'll, we'll why don't we cross that bridge when we get there because it's the i mean the first big revelation here is like that the Early on, you learn the game is set in five different times uh, periods. It's uh, 1945, right. 85, 2025, 2065, and 3005. Yeah, 40 year increments, except for uh, 2188, I believe. That's the that's the outlier uh, of of a year. Yes. Yeah. So, like, uh, I don't know how early on you started getting these guys, but. You start get, getting cutscenes for 2188, which no one else is talking about and shows the names of the characters who are but clearly different people. And also, if you look in the in the menus of the game where it shows the chronological listing of all the events, it shows the 2188 events as the earliest events. I don't think I went back into that timeline because like all that was just like a huge mess. <laughs> like you were just like, here's two points on this 100 point line and everything else is a question mark. So I was just like, you know what, I, I will come back to this when the game is more completed so I can better wrap my head around it. Yeah, that timeline is great if you love Convolution and looking at spreadsheets, because that's what that is. Uh, but Bill, to go back to your uh, to your, your question about, you know, you know the 2188, you know, m- maybe maybe we, sh- we should go back and kind of just go over just the very, 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 very basic plot of this game is, you know... You have these kids living in these different time periods. Eventually, kaiji show up, and they destroy everything. And seemingly, from the get-go, you think that all these things are happening in the distant future. So the, the initial plot is like, well, people are... Okay, people are going back into the past because they're trying to stop this thing from the future from happening. That's sort of like... I, I would say from the beginning, that that's the basic plot line. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, but like... So you think, oh, cool, they're, they're, they're going further, further back in the back and they want to stop this thing from happening in the, the furthest timeline. When it first went to the 2188 timeline, it, it, did, it did two things for me. The first thing was, um, you know, one of the first, like, what is actually going on here moments was when um, one of the characters, um, Natsuno, it's sort of implied that she is not even from Earth. Or there was some comment made about, like, what what makes you even think that you know, you're an Earthling or you're from this planet. Yeah, BJ tells her that. So so at that point, I was thinking like, wait a minute, is she like, is she from another planet? Are we no longer just talking about traveling through one linear timeline? Are we talking about 
alternate realities? Are we talking about interplanetary travel? You know, are we talking about such a distant future where aliens have actually come down to Earth and we're now colonizing with other Earthlings? And so, you know, it ended with that. And, and, and I think after that, it cut to the 2188. And then all of a sudden you get this clip of Natsuno and, and uh, Miura talking. And at that point, I'm like, okay, now I really have no idea what's going on because now there's like a version of her in the future doesn't seem that much older than her version now. And like her and Miura are in a romantic relationship. And I was just like, I, at that point, I'm like, good, what's going on? I, I really hope whoever's listening to this has played this game. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's funny because, you know, we we, do, we we talked about how this is a spoiler cast. But honestly, if you didn't play this game, you could listen to it all right now. And, like, it would make probably no sense it, what we're talking no, about. This, this game doesn't make a lick of sense when you try to describe it to somebody. And, which, like, that's it's one of its strengths, right? Is that it's it's this game is pulling off a narrative that can only be pulled off in a video game, right? You can make the argument that it could exist in like a, in a in a TV series or something. Like I, I, right. I, I think I think maybe Lost might be maybe one of the closest kind of analogies to like a this this does have a very Lost vibe where like it 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 is following like this mystery box style of story. I think the part of this game where it lets you bounce between different narratives because, like you said. This this game is about the thirteen main characters, right? The thirteen Sentinels, who like, and this is not a spoiler. They each one of them pilots a mech to fight kaiju, the giant monsters that are invading from God knows where, because like each character essentially like learns some sort of truth about the universe they live in. They're almost contradictory truths. Like for example, like not not to know. I think the. The girl who looks like Chie from Persona, which, which is why she's she's my favorite girl. She, like, finds BJ, a, like, robot-looking dude, and assumes he's an alien and has, like, men in black. She notices men in black around the school, and she assumes that they are hunting this alien down. So it turns into a very E.T.-style story, but the reality is those are all assumptions, right? Like... He's not exactly an alien. Those aren't exactly men in black. And also they engage in time travel, which like, you know, BJ, when they when they're talking about time travel, he says like, all right, we're going to go over to sector one and then we're going to head over to sector two over in that case. And then, you know, that's not how you talk about time travel. I think the big, you know, at the, at the start of the game, you you get this, you know, focus like these 13 kids are going to band together to stop this evil alien invasion. And you're like, OK. I get that. Like, I'm not sure about who everyone is and what their motives are, but I think I get this. And then you find out, like, as you were saying, like, these sectors don't correspond to different periods of time. They correspond to different spots in a world meant to give you the impression that they take places in different periods of time. And in fact, they're all taking place after 2188. The time trap. All right, so like at some point, a character, I think it's a uh, who's the nineteen forties kid, Mira. Uh, Mira, yeah. Mira like discovers like wait like the cause and effect isn't really something we're seeing here. Like something like in the I witnessed the world get destroyed in the nineteen forties, but now I'm in the nineteen eighties, and like all this all this stuff is still standing which makes him realize like there there is no cause and effect between the different sectors air quotes 
And then, like Bill said, turns out all those sectors are existing concurrently. They, they are just recreations of a specific era in Earth. So the 40s, the 80s, 2020s, and the 2060s. And then it's the four sectors and then... So yeah, five sectors for the five different time periods. And then Sector Zero, which is like the... The non-physical space. The hard drive. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And not only is it past sort of the 2188 period, but it's we're talking tens of thousands of years... I think it was the time period of the game after 2188 as sort of like 2188 being like the world that we as humans today know it. So this is basically long past human extinction. So, you know, that was sort of like also a big revelation too of like, Oh, there, there are no humans. Like that's, that's, that's done. That happened a long time ago, you know? So that was like uh, another kind of uh, crazy moment. The game was realizing that humanity had kind of gone extinct, you know, thousands of years ago before the events of this game sort of took place so that's basically like the backstory right like i, I guess we're uh, god if you're listening to this i god i what are you doing you should have played the game first well you know this might still be a part where like you can say like okay i understand there's like a layers to this and i want to go off and like see the rest of the nitty-gritty myself so yeah uh, you, you gotta see the nitty-gritty in this game, like, you get, like, an E.T. story, a Terminator-style story. Like, there's a Groundhog Day, like, <laughs> like narrative happening here. There's a fight club happening. And one of my favorite things about this game is, like, it's using all those narrative elements to kind of, like, explain away its anime bullshit, right? One of my favorite details, when someone told me about this game, and by someone, I mean a podcast host, host I listen to, uh, they talk about, like, yeah, when, whenever the, these teenagers get into mechs, they get into the mechs naked. And I'm like, wow, that's that's super anime. I guess that's just... Shrug emoji, that's just anime. But the thing is, this game has an explanation for that. And it's... It's nuts! It's, like, probably, like, my favorite revelation. Because I had just, like, hand-waved this thing and waved. Like, well, I don't like that these teenagers are getting naked inside of giant robots, but... What you're going to do, it's anime. And then when they explain that, no, they are, nobody's getting naked. In fact, they can't help but be that. <laughs> all right. This, here's, here's the thing. They never had clothes on because, all right, like in the game's narrative, when you enter a mech, you just kind of teleport into it and you're in this pod and you don't have any clothes. But it turns out all these teens live in a simulated world that's simulating these five different sectors and that they are clones living inside these pods. Thus, anytime they enter the mech, they're actually entering the real world. Yeah, like that's the closest thing to reality is when they enter the cockpits because that is like an approximation of what their bodies actually are sitting in. Yeah, their 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 physical bodies are inside these pods, and that's how they're piloting these mechs. So they're essentially waking up from their matrix-like slumber. To like play a video game in the Matrix to fight these other robots slash aliens, which also the reason why they're aliens in this game, like, is also pretty buck wild. Are, are, did you guys follow that that through line? Oh yeah, absolutely. It's great. The whole thing about like them being naked when they go in their pods, like they made a point to like point it out at the beginning of the game. 
of being like, where are my clothes? Like, I'm, this is weird and awkward. And at first you're like, okay, yeah, you're right. This is incredible anime tropey. I guess they're just in here naked for no reason whatsoever. And the whole time I was just like wondering, like, is this ever going to pay off? Or is this just like a thing that they mentioned once and just sort of, they're just doing it because um, they want to do it, you know? But then, yeah, to have that actually have a payoff, like at the, at pretty much the, the climax of the game, which is like, holy crap. Like they really did think of like, nothing nothing in this game is done for uh, everything done for a reason no detail is ever given if it's if it's sort of not going to have a, a payoff later on so i think that's that's an, a, another reason why you know the gameplay stuck with me is because like so many of these small details they eventually add up into this bigger revelation that's like uh, honestly like to, to craft out the story like i i it's 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 it's, a, it's amazing that it, it would Made as much sense as it did even after playing it through, which I'm still maybe 80% of the way there. This so. game should make zero sense. <laughs> like, because in, in the past 10 minutes, we've talked about time travel. We've talked about... We haven't talked about the fact that they're all clones. This is a, probably a good time to examine exactly what happens in 2188 because it informs why they're in a simulation, uh, what is going on, and... The answer to that generally is things are not going well. Things are not going well in the world in 2188. Uh, you know, they don't exactly explain what happened, but something bad happened. And the Earth is about to be destroyed or is teetering on the brink of destruction. There's this big company called Chikashima that runs, you know, most things in the world. And they bought this other company that makes uh, like memory alterations uh, the, the person who runs Shikishima is basically like engineering this in, in such a way that he can uh, live a new life. He's found, funding this thing called Project Arc, where they're going to send a big colony out into the universe and put people's DNA in there and mix it with like archived memories of these people to create new humans. And this is before everything goes to crap, right? Like that Project Arc was just made before everything went bad. Yes, yeah, that was going to happen beforehand, but then the guy who was funding it, uh, you know, kicks the bucket, and the person who is uh, now running the company, Nenji Ogata, who is the same, like, pompadour-wearing, or appears to be the same Nenji Ogata as in, you know, the regular story, cancels the project. He's like, no, I don't want to do this anymore. And that leads to the AI archive of the deceased president of the company collaborating with Professor Jihiro Morimura to keep the things running. And to do that, they're like, well, just we'll sell nanomachines. We'll sell nanomachines to people to raise the money. What could go wrong? Everything went wrong. Yeah. Like, is it, I, I don't know if it's either like a gray goo disaster or a rampant AI disaster or like the memory hacks, like caused political destabilization and nuclear war or whatever, but... Yeah, they kept it vague intentionally, I'm pretty sure, but like... I think they just called it a nanomachine virus. Fill in your own plot detail, take your own inspiration from whatever fiction and put it in there. And suddenly, Project Ark is the only thing that the world has left going to keep humanity alive. The last, uh, not exactly 15, but most of the remaining... Uh, civilization is working together to try and get Project Arc out the door before everyone uh, kicks it. And then, as tends to happen, uh, people argue over 
how the project is supposed to be finished, and there's a bunch of violence, and pretty much everyone just kills each other. And, and, a, and an assassination, don't forget that. Yeah, yeah. basically, humanity is dead, and all that's left are like the 16 people on a spaceship who eventually all kind of kill each other. So now there's just a spaceship hurtling through space with the genetic information and the, like, digitized memories of these people uh, like that will go to like what is ostensibly a like a habitable planet, and the terraforming has already has that already happened by the time the arc gets there, or I they, I think I believe they have sent terraforming robots ahead of them. That's my understanding of it. it. Could be wrong. My blue sky understanding of what was supposed to happen is they send these probes out, they find a habitable planet. They terraform the planet. They build some like basic facilities for people to live in. They begin a they begin creating the humans. They create in the pods in the Sentinel cockpits, and then they generate the simulation for them to live in until they're twenty, and then they get out and they live on the world. Except they uh, there's one extra problem in that one of the people, her name being Ryoko Shinonome. Is like, man, humanity sucks. Do we really deserve a second chance? I say no. And so she hacks the simulation, which is partially based on a uh, video game that had existed 30 years ago, which also hilariously was created by VanillaWare, and makes it so that whenever the simulation gets too far along, the enemies from the game invade and destroy the simulation and cause it to reboot. Yeah, because one of, because one of the programmers for the project basically just took the code from that game and just like, well, we'll just we'll just we'll just turn off the switch for the monster. I'm sure it's it's fine. Uh, we'll just reuse all these assets from <laughs> from this other game. And the 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 the, the codex entry, I can't remember what the codex is called in this game, but it it it, it lists that game as like what, like it gives you some lore on it, and apparently that game was well regarded for being able to handle like, a multitude of AI characters at any given moment. Mighty Kaiju Deimos is the name of the game. Mighty Kaiju Deimos. But apparently the game was lauded because, like, it could handle AI simula- like, multiple AI simulations at any given moment. So the guy who was programming the Matrix for them to live in was like, oh, you know what, I'll just borrow this code because I already know it works. I already know this code can handle, like, multiple AIs at any given time uh and then and then like bill said we're just going to turn off the part where like monsters show up coders reuse code that's a thing they do but but also like it, it's again like one another aspect of this game where it's like it like you see these monsters and you think like oh this is some anime bullcrap like they're probably from space or underground who knows uh but no it's <laughs> there there's a yes it's dumb that they're monsters in this world, in this fiction, but the game jumps through a lot of hoops to like make that reality a believable one. The the journey of figuring out who the kaiju were was like, at first you think, oh, they're aliens from another planet, you know, they're they're invaders of this world. Then you find out like, oh no, these are actually robots that were manufactured by that company, um, Shikishima, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and they were meant; these robots were meant to terraform other planets, but somehow. They went evil, and now they're turning against, you know, the humans, and they're using their terraforming abilities to now become these crazy, you know, robots. 
And so you assume that for a good portion of the game, and then it's like, oh, wait, actually, no, they're just, it's just code left over. Yeah, that's the craziest thing, is, like, these robots, these, these, these kaiju don't actually exist. They're just, like, a part of a video game that have been resurrected to interrupt this simulation, because, like Bill said, like, they're, they're trying to grow human, like, this is, like, the game actually takes place, what, like, a couple thousand years after humans have gone extinct, so... I think even more than that, like, like I think they say like millions of years afterward, because they say that the planet is 12,000 light years away from Earth. So like it, it took them countless, countless centuries to just even get to the planet. So so essentially this this arc program has been running on autopilot and it, it needs to complete a 20 year cycle to let these humans, these clones like step out of the pods. Yeah, basically, basically, basically to get mature enough to the point where they can survive on their own and not just completely break their brains of like, hey, you're on this other planet now. It's also a good reason why, like, the protagonists of the games are teenagers, right? Mm -hmm. Because this program is terminating early, like, due to that sabotage that we talked about earlier. So, like, they don't have a chance to reach the age of 20. And then when all, when all the members of the simulation die... Like the 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 program restarts anew and and also introduces this concept of cycles, right? Where like the the characters that we see in this game are currently going through a cycle, but they encounter characters from previous cycles who like have completely different relationships with those same characters from their own cycles. But yeah, like Boy. as as you, Ryoko sabotaged simulation and like when we are joining the game it's apparently like hundreds of these simulations have already been run and all failed because of the virus like they keep getting to the end and they fail and then like uh to borrow more computer terminology we're getting close to like uh having too much of a memory leak it sounds like or basically the the simulation is getting dangerously close to shutting down because of the number of times it's had to run over and over again and we actually, the first events we get to see are from two loops ago, where they finally, seemingly, finally get to the point where they can figure out how to back up their data. And that's where Sector Zero, the kind of the extra hard drive, gets into the equation. I, I really like that addition of, of characters being able to like move on to the next loop. Uh, and it does explain that you know, even though that particular clone, that body dies, the memories of that clone get backed up into Sector Zero, the one sector that people can't, quote, time travel to. Uh, and that that's how they survive into the next loop, even though the body hasn't survived, the memories are still there. And it's still interacting with, you know, the current set of clones. And it really, it really plays even more into the gaminess of this, because you're kind of like doing a new game plus, or like... Uh... Where you get to like, okay, I get to retain all the knowledge I had of the previous loop, and now I get to in take that into the new loop. My yeah, so that the main character, or who you would assume is the main character, because he's kind of like the most shonen anime style main character. On the title screen, yeah, he's front and center. So yeah, you you kind of he's in the middle of the box art too. So like you, you're you're made to assume that he's like. You know, the Naruto of this game, right? He's the Shinji of this game. He's the Shinji of this game. 
He's the Aaron Yeager, if you will. God, I hope you all love anime. <laughs> we just stopped, we just dropped a whole lot of anime reference. But like he's, you know, he's, he's essentially like this milk toast character, right? Basically uninteresting in every way until like the the game explains he's literally been lobotomized. So there's a reason why he's also in a milk toast, uninteresting character. The previous Juro Izume was the one that discovered, like, or he's he's one of the characters that was able has been able to survive the loop twice now. Him and Morimura, right? We're like, we're like the original two. So they 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 are both from the same loop. So there's actually something kind of amazing about that. So like on the two loops ago, they both backed up into Sector Zero and they got brought back into the new loop. But then on the loop, one loop ago, Juro backed up, but Chihiro didn't back up because like there's a cutscene where she has to like sacrifice herself to save the young Tetsuya Ida and back him up instead. So then in the next loop, the loop where the game takes place, there's Juro from two loops ago, Ida from one loop ago, and then Chihiro from two loops ago with the memory of the two loops ago, but not the one loop ago. That makes perfect sense to me. <laughs> I blacked out for a moment. Because that's why Chihiro kills Juro at the start of the current loop, is because she talks to Ida, and she's like, yo, what happened? And Ida's like, oh, he killed everyone. She's like, oh my god. And so she just goes and he like, kills him. Yeah, because Chihiro and uh, Juro from two loops ago, you know, when they get sent back to restart the loop, they think, okay, well, we we gotta stop this from happening. So, what's the first thing we're gonna do? Like, well, what if we just what if we just bomb the facility that is going to make these terraforming robots so that the robots never get made? So, you know, they're branded as terrorists. In, Somewhat in justifiably, that, <laughs> you know, that loop. And then uh, I think that's you know, then, and then as you said, um, Chihiro doesn't make it out of that one, and then. Juro goes back to another loop, and he's like, okay, well, now I discovered that it's actually the Sentinel pilots who are the ones who are summoning the kaiju regardless of, you know, the this factory or whatever. So what if I just kill all these teenagers, uh, you know, before they ever get a chance to, you know, pilot a Sentinel? And which, I mean, I get the intent of what he's doing, but, you know, also not, like, a super great move. Uh, so that's what, and that's how... Um, is Morimura kill him, or is that when he gets arrested and he becomes 426? So he got, after he they bombed the building, he got arrested and escaped. Oh, that's when he became 426 after the bombing. Yeah, because he, he's prisoner 426 from the that thing. And then he, yeah, that, at that point, then he goes and kills all the kids, but except for Ida, who Chihiro manages to save. And uh, I think at that point, she doesn't kill him. But then the next time they see each other, she does kill him. Except he's not really dead, though, because then he comes back as an AI. <laughs> yeah. So a after that, Ida becomes like a scientist. And to learn more about what's going on, he takes the backed up data from Juro from Sector Zero and puts it in an android to talk to him. And torture him, too. Let's not forget that. <laughs> also, there's, like, an entire love story about, like, the girl that he, like, grew up loving because she's, like, she, she sang real good. And, and she becomes an idol. And then she dies, so he puts her brain in a robot. And then, the, god damn it, that robot survives the cycle and becomes 
an idol essentially living on the moon. Yeah, basically. Yeah. And so that AI idol lady becomes like... Have either of you seen Megazone 23, by the way? Nah. You know, is, is it what this game is about? <laughs> if you start watching Megazone 23, you'll be like, oh my god, this is 13 Sentinels. Like, I'm in. I'm, I'm putting wow. that on my watch okay, list. Yeah, I, gotta, I gotta check the, that out now. <laughs> the, it, the, the AI idol permeates the the matrix program that they live in so she becomes a real idol with like hits on the radio as a way to communicate with that current cycle of clones yeah that, that might be a good chance to bring in like the, the concept of universal control so yeah i think in in that loop which i think was maybe one loop ago they were they were going to transport all of the of the pilots into sector zero but there was an explosion that messed up the data of um tomi kisaragi Miura and um, there was one more who got messed up during that too. Uh, Might have been Shin- T- Tamao and Hijiyama were both there, but only Tamao, Miura, um, and Tomi appear after that. Maybe Shinonomi also got messed up during that as well. But so as a result, Tomi Kizaragi got sent. Like they 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 couldn't send her to Sector Zero, so instead, like, well, okay, we'll just send your AI to this space station that's that's circling the. So the space station is circulating the planet that has been terraformed for the protagonists. That that that's actually there's there's two distinct actual uh, things that are happening there. Uh, so she does she does get in the accident, and they do put her in the android, and then her android body gets stolen. So Ida's like, "I'll put you in another android body. It's fine." And she's like, "No, put me in a Sentinel." And so they put her in a Sentinel. And that's when like the 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 virus gets distributed and like the the, the defense goes all bad. So they like they're, they just send all the sentinels randomly around the world or into the different time zones. And that's where she gets transported into the the orbiting ship. That's right. That loop that loop was the loop where the sentinels were all AI piloted. That's the current loop, and it's from uh, it's like the first time they tried to mount a defense basically with, with the sentinels in 2065 yeah, so 2065 is where they try to like use ai sentinels and then that messes up so they all those sentinels go to other sectors yeah so so now she's living in a space station and she basically is trying to find a way to communicate with the protagonist again but so there's a concept of universal control where basically it, it's presented as this mysterious force it's like there's this there's this governing force that is controlling the amount of information that's coming into this world. It's preventing information that doesn't make sense for the people to understand. And if, you know, if she were to just communicate with people up front, the universal control would basically block out the information. So what she has to do is she assumes the identity of Miyuki Inaba, this idol from like the 1980s. And so she's able to assume that identity, basically beam herself into TV and because Universal Control just thinks she's just, you know, an 80s pop star, lets it happen. And so she communicates to Shu uh, uh, Amagamuchi through the TV. I sort of like, hey, like, I know what's going on. Let me, let me give you all the hot tips. And so then later you find out that the whole reason Universal Control exists is, again, because these people are in a simulation, they have to keep their mental state in, in a way where it's not going to break so universal control is there to make sure that as far as those people are concerned, this is Earth as we know it from these time periods. 
and so it is there to eliminate any any um, reference to the fact that they are, you know, humanity's last surviving, you know, last survivor. So that's another kind of oh crap moment of like, what is universal control? It's like, oh, it's part of this part of this AI, you know. So like that was a, a crazy part too. I like how it also exists to like explain away certain like things that wouldn't make sense. Like I think uh, Sukasa comments at one point like. You know, if you were in a in a mech and you got punched, your body would turn into jelly. So, like, it explains, like, how they can actually, they're not really piloting the Sentinels, but, like, it's sort of hand-waving that away and, like, how they can, like, fall from hundreds of feet in the air in the flight, you know, mechs and be fine with it and stuff like that. Yeah, like, mo- modern sci-fi, like, will, like, deal with that now. If you ever watch The Expanse, you know, like, it's a, a show about space travel... But, like, they have, because it's, like, dealing with actual physics, like, inertia is, like, a big deal for, like, people in these spaceships, right? Like, they can't, like, fire these spaceships way too fast because the people inside them will die. So it's essentially hand-waving that away in this game by saying, like, they're not actually in mechs, guys. Don't worry about it. Again, another aspect of this game where it's, like, taking something that is a trope or something that maybe eye rolly to an observer, but like gives it a contextual and grounded in universe explanation. Not that, you know, any of this is remotely believable, but like, yeah, at that point you, you don't know if universe control, like it's just, if they bad, it's someone, it's just like an evil AI situation where this AI is controlling all these people, you know? And then like you said, there was like a, a logical reason for it to exist. And uh, one of my favorite, like, characters that ex- explores it, uh, Shu, Shu Amaguchi, like, he, where he learned, like, somebody tells him, like, hey, hey, just try driving more than 30 kilometers away from the center of the city. Just try it. See what happens. I think Inaba tells him to do that. And then, so he does that with, uh, with Yuki. And, like, they both, like, as they're talking about, like, their memories from, like, visiting the countryside it turns out they have the exact same memories of like visiting their family which is kind of weird and then when they actually like exit that perimeter like they both like they just see like miles and miles of like mechanical like futuristic building so like Shu assumes that like oh we're inside a spaceship god damn again like this game is really really good about like presenting you with information and then letting characters assumptions color that information uh and like which is like why all these like all these revelations seem like contradictions until the very end this game feels like a christopher nolan movie uh if like if christopher nolan movies had stronger internal logic like, if you watch Inception or Tenet or, like, even The Illusionist, like, there are some parts of it that don't, like, stand to scrutiny. But, like, this game, like, takes, like, crazy ideas and then, like, explores them out to their, like, logical extents and, and like, stays consistent with all of them. Yeah, there's not there's not too much hand wavy stuff in it. You know, the universal control might be might be the, the biggest hand, the biggest way to hand wave away a lot of things. You know, like you said, Bill. But also, it makes sense as to why they would want to hand wave hand wave away certain things because, again, that's that's part of this arc training. You know, it is to keep them grounded in reality. Yeah.
I think it might be good. I think one thing we could do is like, you know, I think despite how many characters there are, a lot of them are kind of just like set pieces that are being like manipulated by a handful of characters and like saying like, who are the characters who are actually influencing things and what do they want? Because like, I think there are five characters that are like central to like the, how they want the simulation to end. And I think we could maybe cover those and then also still have time to like get into like favorite moments. You know, listener at this point, yeah, just know that if we were to cover the story of every individual character, it would, we would just not have enough time to really go into all of that. So uh, we're just going to talk about uh, the characters who are like trying to basically who's trying to fix the simulation and what are they trying to do to do it? And we can start by talking about Chihiro, or as we see her a lot, Ms. Morimura. And her plan is this thing called Operation Aegis? Aegis? I never know. I don't know. I say Aegis. Uh, I'm team Aegis. So her her deal is that she's been through a couple loops now. And she's also had access to information regarding twenty the year 2188. She knows her uh, progenitor is responsible largely for the end of the world. <laughs> so she feels a little guilty about that probably. And she also knows that the the simulations are pretty close to breaking, that if they fail again, there may not be another one. And so her idea is like, maybe we should just like, what if we just like kind of chill in the simulation? Can we just like sit in the simulation forever? And that's where Operation Aegis comes in. They're going to go and basically unplug the Ethernet cable to universal control to Sector Zero. And the, the, the end result of that would be they, the, the invasion would stop. They would not be invaded anymore. But also, they would be stuck in the civilization, or the simulation, from whenever they stop, when they unplug the cable. And also, all of the AI people would die, or just cease to exist. So it would just be like the 15 people with nanomachines left in the world forever. I never thought of it as that analogy of unplugging the Ethernet cable, but I think that's actually probably the, the best analogy <laughs> I've heard of it. Because like in, in universe, the explanation is like, well, there's these, so they, they, they realize that they, you know, they're, they're living on top of these defense points, basically. And these defense points have like built in kills all electronics thing. I can't remember. Oh, EMP. EMP, yeah, the thing that doesn't actually work like it like it ever does in, in fiction. So all these all these towers have a way to basically EMP wipe out any kaiju, but I guess to activate it, they have to the kaiju have to get just close enough to the tower for defense systems to actually activate, but not close enough where they'll destroy the towers. So they have to do this at at, at all these points in in the um, all these towers in the game. Um, and finally, I guess at the last one. So at the last one, is that what they're trying to do? Is when they finally get down to the last tower, are are are, are these EMP that are going off? Is it basically killing off connection to the basically outside the simulation? If I can extend the metaphor, they shut down all the terminals but one, and then they're like waiting for Miyuki Inaba to help them. And Inaba's plan is that they're gonna shut down everything except the one, and then restart the simulation in safe mode. But that wasn't. But that wasn't Morimura's plan. The Morimura's plan was to to shut them all down. Okay. Yeah, she she, she wanted to shut down the AI. Just live to live in the computer. Because she figured that like that was the best alternative left. Like it would be kind of a miserable existence. And I think she even knew that. But she was like, 
There's no other way. Yeah, but from her point of view, um, a miserable existence is better than no existence. A crazy fucking story, but like an actual grounding, like an emo- a, a good emotional grounding for someone who like can be viewed as a villain at certain points of the story. Uh, I'm I'm not on board with this plan because any plan that means that I don't get to see Miwako anymore is garbage to me. Miwachan. She Everyone was great. Miwachan. Miwachan. She's so pr- I thought she was going to be evil. <laughs> I, I just wanted to protect her at every turn and corner. I did think it was kind of funny. Like, Kyuta ends up having, like, a larger role to play in the story. Erika Aiba has a larger role to play. But, like, Wataru and Miwako never get, like, their moment to shine. That's right. He never he never did really aspire to much of but he was in the ending at least, so at least he uh still kinda got a little shout out there. Uh, but yeah, so if you're if you're not in favor of this plan, then you're gonna hate the so the good news is that she doesn't get to pull it off. Ms. Morimura is killed. The the bad news is she's killed by Professor Chihiro Morimura, who is uh her plan is yeah, let, let, let's let it all burn. Let the aliens win. We'll just let the whole simulation end. It's fine. This is fine. And and she was... Professor Morimura is the 2188 version of Morimura, right? That's correct, yes. So, yeah, tw- 21... Actually, actual 2188 Morimura, with all the memories of Earth as we... As they, as they used to know it, found her way into the simulation. And like, she, was, she was trying to reborn, because like, she's... So she's like little, but she's also like chibi more and more, where she's like in the body of like herself as like yeah, six or seven year old kid with with like also kind of sort of the same mental capacities and like physical uh, limitations as well. Because she had to actually you know grow up old enough to like get, guess reclaim her memories or something. Like it was. Well... So her original plan was she was going to take over Chihiro from the jump, like you know. The very first, at the very first moment, she was going to download her memories into Chihiro, the person that was growing up. But that didn't end up happening because she got killed by Sekigahara before she could make that happen. So then when the Chihiro Ms. Morimura in the simulation is like trying to experiment with ways to get back her ability to use the gates and use the sentinels, she creates a clone and downloads the memories of Professor Morimura into the clone by mistake. That's right, because 2188 Morimura was sort of, like, being a little selfish with, like, the... Because the original plan was that all of them are going to send their clones in basically just fresh, with no memories of the past selves. But she basically was like, well, no, they need they need a, they need a, they need a leader, they need someone to guide them along the way. I don't... I, 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 I would feel... Basically, she's like, I would feel bad if these people would have no way, no strong leader to guide them along the way. So I'm going to actually self-insert myself into the simulation. And then, like you said, it goes bad after the assassination, but somehow still finds a way into the simulation. Yes, yeah. Like, there's a, another 2188 cutscene where the Ida from that time period is like, hey, I noticed that, like, they're messing with the memories of people and, like, backing up data. But whatever, I don't care. Who cares? <laughs> yeah, her plan is to... Uh, just like let all the let the aliens win, let the simulation end, and like eh, we'll see what happens after that. Who cares? So that's two of them, and then there's uh, Tetsuya Ida, who also has his own ambition to let the aliens win, like let the simulation happen, because he gets the idea that 
if they loop again, he can implant the memories from his Tomi Kasarji into the new Tomi Kasarji that'll be made with the new reboot. He's like probably the closest to, to a villain in the actual story because like he's just like he's sabotaging people left and right and like ruining their lives. Yeah, and, and not to mention that he he plans to bring her back and basically overwrite the memories of the new Tomi who's coming in because he did succeed in bringing back Tomi in a, in, a, in a previous loop into an android body, but she basically was like, I don't want any part of this. Like, I don't want to be like, because he was like, well, I'm going to download you into the Tomi of this universe as a human. That way you don't have to live in an android body. And she was like, I'm not down with this plan because like, yo, that's a, that's an actual person, you know? You know that you know that's like another one of me. Don't do that. So so then yeah. So then he gets the idea of like, well, okay, if I just put her in and not tell her anything from the get go, then she won't know that I've just completely wiped out this other person. Uh, so yeah, that's not not great. This might be even worse. Is like it's implied the the scene where he successfully does the the transplant. It's implied that's not his first attempt. So like. When you create a new copy of the data, aren't you essentially creating a new person? Isn't this like the the eighth Tomi Kasarji he's made? Yeah, it does sound like he's been through quite a few attempts at this. He's he's the dirt worst. He gets off so easy in the ending. Like, I can't believe this. Like, let I, I don't think he was worth redeeming. And then they're like, did they actually redeem him? I, I don't know if it's so much of a redemption as like, listen... You kind of sucked, but you know, it's, it's all it's all anime anyway. So, and we're we're we you you live inside a simulation, so I guess yeah, I guess there are those three, and then I think there's like one more major person who's like really the person who kind of saves everyone really, and that's Jiro Izumi from two loops ago. Yeah, from two loops ago, the the guy who killed everyone, who's like, okay, 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 mistakes were made probably shouldn't have killed all the kids i have a new idea a better idea and his plan is that he's going to uh secretly implant all the kids with uh skill trees he's going to give them all skill trees so they know how to uh they can like upgrade their mechs and make them fight better because that will allow them to keep up with the uh kaiju invasion the the background for this is like through the various loops like the kaiju as they're fighting, they will adapt for their enemy to eventually overcome that enemy, uh, uh, the humans, right? He somehow discovers that the kaiju are based off of a video game code. So he's basically injecting all these people with nanomachines to alter the, the code so that, yes, they're essentially getting skill trees. And like even like when he's talking about his plan, it's the most... It's the hammiest explanation of why you can upgrade your mechs in, like, the the battle portion of the game. Because, like, he just goes on, like, yeah, imagine, like, if you, you kill a kaiju, you, you get a currency. We'll call them meta chips. And I'm like, oh, the thing I've been using to upgrade my mechs? Like, it, because it's a video game? Like He should have winked, winked at the screen at that point, because, yeah, it's just yeah. like, hey, those, those skill points... There's a reason for those too. <laughs> yeah, it, it it's it's like if you were playing a game of Dungeons of Dragons and then your your dungeon master came up with a like a wizard that said like every time you fight enemies you're gonna suck up some life essence. Uh, let's call it uh, experience. <laughs> you'll get experience points and then you'll 
increase your abilities. We'll call those levels. Oh, so you're saying when Toby Fox does it, it's brilliant. But when this game does it, it sucks. Oh, yeah, I understand. No, no, no I don't think I don't think it's brilliant, too. No, I don't think I, I don't think it sucks at all. I think it's 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 it, like I said, it, it, it's for as hammy, for as ham-fisted as it is, like it, it fits into the narrative of this world. And, and it, it, it it felt earned. It felt like, OK, you, you have for the record. This. I didn't think Undertale had enough mechs in it. That's a fair point. Uh, anyway, that's like a, just one of my favorite character moments where like he basically just like <laughs> again. And Juro is Izumi is like uh, is breaking, a.k.a. Prisoner 426. Like he's breaking all the rules of the simulation. We haven't talked about um, what what's the character that he plays as? Um, Fluffy? The cat? Uh, no, <laughs> Kyuta Shiba. Yeah, Kyuta oh, Shiba. Shiba. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Kyuta Shiba. I had talked about. How, all right. So. I don't know where we're at with the narrative again, but basically like we've explained that he's from two cycles ago and he's basically trying to give the current cycle a fighting chance by like by leaning into this video game code. But also he's trying to feed memories into this cycles Juro, giving him his old memories via what are interpreted as VHS tapes and disguising that as media that the current Juro enjoys which is why he's always talking about like renting movies and playing video games like the sinister nature of Shiba is Mwah. French kiss that was like the fight club moment of like you know at the beginning of the game you, you get front and center here's Juro here's this kind of bland protagonist here's his his spunky best friend who's also into all these you know movies and, and games that he's into and they're best buddies um, and then as you find out that, oh, actually, no, that's, that is 426 Juro in his nanomachines and all this time that he's been talking to him, everyone's like, who are you talking to? And that like, no one else can see him. And yeah, it, it, it at first is presented in a very sinister way of like, who is this person who is now living in his body, who is feeding him these memories and why? Because at first you're led to believe that like, he's in there to take over Juro's body. He's, he's there to you know, carry out his nefarious plan as the evil 426, uh, you know, prisoner 426. And so, and then I eventually later to be like, no, no, he's actually, the, the, the journey of 426 of being, is he good? Is he bad? No, he's good. No, he's bad. No, he's actually good. Um, I thought was, it was, was very, you know, was crafted super well. And then for an end, for, an, for the end of it being like, and he's not even doing it in a way where it's like, I, I'm leaving the fate up to all of you. I'm just giving you, like, you know, as you said, Louise, I'm just giving you a fighting chance. But ultimately, it's going to be up to you, 13, to decide the fate of um, ultimately this loop. Yeah, and, like, he, he's the one who is the most, like, supportive of them, really, and the one who, like, actually has the best ideas. One of my favorite uh, moments with 426, like, when you when you discover, like, Shiba's, like, true nature you discover he actually is this AI from two cycles ago and that has permeated your psyche. There, there's a moment where you're replaying that classroom scene and he's like, you know, it's pretty useless to resist. Right. And like, he starts disappearing and reappearing in different places. Like, dude, like, why are you trying to fight this? Cause I'm, I'm trying to help you, you know? And there's a moment where if you linger too long in the, in the classroom, he'll, he'll just appear and be like, Hey, you can't do anything, and then you get booted out into like the the menu of the game. Yeah, 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I didn't get that part. Yeah, yeah. He, he he just shows up and was like, hey, stop it. And then back to like character selection screen, which wow. is like, I like drop my control like, Jesus, God. Oh, he's in the game. He's in the video game UI. Speaking of Undertale influences. I, I, w- I honestly <laughs> wish they did more of that. Like, because it only happened once in the game. And I guess if it's if it's a surprise, it only works once, right? So remember that like it wasn't more obvious because like, like I said, I, I never got that, and it would have been would have been would have been a very cool like moment to have gotten that for sure. Yeah, and and it only happens when like like you're you're just kind of like messing around and like just poking around in this, in the classroom scene for way too long. Um, honestly, that game could have used more of that. I think I I really wanted to see more of like oh how deep he, is he into this. Can he erase my mystery files? So I think that covers at least the the motivations of like the power brokers in the game and like what they were aiming for, which I think is kind of confusing at times, like who are there are two different Morimuras and there's two different Juros and stuff like that. So I think we'll get into some other moments here, but I did want to ask a few questions of you guys that I had kind of tailored to wind down the podcast a little bit. First of all, uh, Louisa, you can start and then uh, Joe next. Uh, Was there ever a point when you were just like shocked by a new mystery or revelation, like that kind of opened things up for you in a way you hadn't expected? Some of the moments that like opened up my eyes to what the reality of this world could be. Again, obviously, Izumi uh, slash 426, like messing around with the UI of, of the character basically indicating like oh there there is some sort of digital reality at play here but like again the moment where like it you realize like oh the reason that there's naked teenagers inside mechs like on the surface that sounds dumb but when you get the full explanation of like they're teenagers because they, they they have not been given the chance to mature to adulthood uh and they're they're naked because that that's actually their reality. They're clones inside pods, and in that pod, they are piloting mechs because the simulated world they're in has some code based off of a video game. So that's their best fighting chance to live actual human lives. It's uh, it's I think it's it's wonderful. Like that was like such a an explosive moment for me. I, I think for me, I think we covered off on um kind of a lot of them already. You know, just the whole idea that. Is, you know, this isn't time travel. It's it's sort of like sector traveling, and it's you know the whole concept of it being a bunch of loops. Uh, we kind of talked a lot about the whole idea of universal control, and them being, you know, the first time they go underground, like wait, this is like a, a UFO they're on. Like, what is this? What is this structure underneath the city? I thought was was a big one, but I think one moment that kind of really got me um, in, in, in like a I thought I might have known what's going on, but really now now I really don't know what's going on was in um, Ogata's. So the part of Ogata's story where you're basically doing the Groundhog Day stuff, where you're going through the same... You're kind of going through the same scene on a on a train platform over and over and over again because you're basically... in a, You're in a simulation in a simulation where you're basically trying to access some information that exists in his memory 
by going through the scene and making different choices and talking to different people um, and, and hopefully finding, uh, you know, the key that they're looking for. And you come across, I think, Fuyasaka at the time on a train. And I think it eventually, like, she changes between, like, young Chihiro to Fuyasaka to, like, the, the older Morimura. And at, at that point, like, you know that there's some connection between the three of them. And you're not quite sure what it is. And then seeing that, it's like, well, okay, now I really don't know what the connection is because are they all the same person? Are they, is Fuyasaka at this timeline, the same Morimura at the other timeline? I think that was such a, like, such a crazy way to end that, like, one particular loop. That's just like, like I said, it, it feels like in this game, every time you think you've cracked the case on something, it just throws something else at you to be like, no, actually, you don't know anything about this at all. And and And, and you know, the game has so many moments like that. I'm going to borrow a moment that did not happen to me directly, but I read about it. And like, if I had had that happen, it would have been like kind of a mind blowing moment. So, you know, when the characters in destruction mode, when they get down to critical health, someone will like radio them and be like, hey, you're in too deep. Pull out, pull out. So, you know, usually it'll be someone who's close to them. Like, you know, uh, if, you know, uh, Yuki is in danger, Shu will like message her and be like, hey, you're don't be so reckless, you know. But if it's Renya Goto who's in danger the little Chihiro will message him. Be like, eh, you're not doing so good, are you? And, like, if that were to happen to you, like, very early on in the game, and it's like, who is this sassy young child messaging me? What What is going on here? Who's this seven-year-old with a teddy, like a bunny, messaging me while I'm in a mech? Yeah, that that, that was a neat little feature, yeah. I, I, I never got the Godo low health because during the uh the people that were always low health were uh basically my gen one mech pilots because they were the front, they were getting, front getting dirty yeah the rough riders <laughs> getting in there with destruction blade so uh yeah yeah the great timing because let's let's talk about uh for destruction mode do you have any tips any characters you really like to use in that mode i uh, mean you know, like obviously you played through the whole thing, but like, were there? What would you do? How'd you get through it? Uh, I had before I read the or played the game. I had read a a couple of spoiler free tips of when I read them. I didn't really because the game is so complex. I didn't really like get a lot of what they were talking about. I just scanned it. But the one tip that I really latched onto was use sentry guns. I relied a lot on. Um, the Gen 2 mechs, uh, which are like supposed to be like your generic all-purpose mechs. Those characters have an ability to like plop down a sentry gun. They could do about two or three at a time each. I, I never found the destruction mode that challenging, but being able to plop down like two to four like sentry guns at a time, like made that made that section a breeze. And I I had a lot of fun with that too. Also uh, my Gen One boys—they're—they're they're the brawlers. You get—you get Ogata in there. You get the other two. Who cares? Just to bring Ogata along. Bring my boy Ogata. He's gonna—you gonna punch him. You want—you want to punch them. You want to punch the robots, and he's gonna do it for you. Yeah, we were talking earlier about Destruction Blade, and pretty much—I <laughs> I don't think the game is—I don't think you can win Destruction Mode if you don't have someone with Destruction Blade in, in every map, just because it cuts through like pretty much every high armor, high elf um, kaiju, of which almost every map has at least one, if not multiple versions of it. You know, I, I kind of had the same the same thought on on it, it on destruction mode, where 
playing through the so the beginning of the game gets you through a, uh, a kind of an extended tutorial where it swaps between sort of the story, the remembrance mode, and the destruction mode before it, it puts them into their own separate categories. I, I remember going into the destruction mode and, and and first being surprised at like how abstract the battles were. I, I was expecting something more along the lines of like a front mission where it's like you you do get to see the mechs you know fully animated, you see all these attacks. But it's a, it's a kind of abstract um, battlefield that they give you. Um, and the other thing I kind of remember going into the destruction mode was it was it felt really easy. Where I'm just like, I'm, yeah. I'm never in any trouble whatsoever. So I actually started the game when, when it did eventually break them out into their own separate modes. I actually did start the game bumping the difficulty up. Where I'm like, you know what? I might actually need a little bit of extra challenge here. I'm going to bump it up. But I didn't touch the destruction mode because I, I started going to the remembrance mode and realizing that's where like the story like really really sucked me in and then i got to the point where like you have to play destruction mode to unlock more story and at that point I'm like well screw the challenge of destruction mode. i just want to get through it as fast as possible so i bumped it back down to kind of the default setting and um i think i might have mentioned earlier too that it, it became sort of this thing that like i didn't really want to do but like i had to do to get more story because you didn't really get a ton of story in in the destruction mode but it, it did eventually grow on me, and like maybe by about the the, the third or so um, chapter uh, missions, I was starting to think about who I was taking into more. Uh, Louise, you know, you said the sentry guns, and I ab- by the end of it, I absolutely was abusing sentry guns um, <laughs> and the long rangers. Um, so like all the Gen three mechs, um, like she, like um, what's her face. Um, Tommy and Natsuno, I think, became like my two MVPs for every battle I could bring them into because they could just like decimate the entire field. And I think I think even the abstract nature of the battle sort of started to grow on me as well. I think some of it actually had to do with some of the Gen 3 mechs because seeing the missiles rain from above, even from an abstract point of view, was like really, really awesome to see it just take out a bunch of just like drone kaiju. And you did get like and even though it wasn't like the super the most super detailed battles, you did get like really cool animation. Like if you if you hovered over the attacks there was like a little movie that you can see for each attack that kind of showed like in detail what they actually look like. I'm like, oh, that's what Mike Spike looks like. <laughs> and like, it looks really badass in this cool little in this cool little video. So like, I just kind of transplanted that from my from that little video and just just imagine it was happening like on the battlefield. You know, I was really initially disappointed uh, when I saw the like the the battle sections were really just abstracted views of a mech battle right it almost seems like a ui through a computer that you're viewing the battle from right because the the mechs are represented by like tiny figurines and and the monsters the the same but you're right like after a while that geometry war style presentation started growing on me a little bit like the little movies the like the, uh, the WMV clips that play in the menu when you're upgrading your weapons, like, actually do go a long way of, like, oh, that's what a, like, a rush attack looks like. It's a, a, a mech punching, but also, like, twisting its entire torso to, like, punch again, which is pretty cool. And they even explain away in the, in the menu, like, yes, there are, like, gyro servers in the waist, so when they punch, they punch extra hard. And, like, it, it does a lot to, like, this game does a lot of its heavy lifting with lore like that in, like, the mystery files and in, like, upgrade menus. Uh, and so when you see it play out in that abstracted mode, it, it does eventually become satisfying when, like, you kind of, like, hear, like, these crunchy sounds come out of your mechs. 
and the explosions of the of the kaiju like collecting into meta chips it became something i like i i know i've heard stories of people like avoiding the destruction mode because they weren't into it but after doing the story mode a little bit i was like you know what i I really want to see some mechs there are plenty of visual novel games out there that try and tack on an action-y moment to like give the player more agency and fall flat on their face. I'm looking at you, Danganronpa. But uh, yeah, this one doesn't feel too bad. I think they like it's not fully fleshed out as a game, but it's pretty competent. Yeah, it's it's I a lot of pe- I've seen a lot of people describe this as an RTS, um, but really I think it's more of a tower defense. Yeah, game, and yeah, I think it's, I, it's, I it's better. That. It's, I think it's better to approach it that way because you're going to have a... I think I think you're going to have a better time with it if you approach the combat that way. I mean, how there were a lot of battles where I didn't even move anyone at all. Just let everyone come to me and just, you know, shoot them from far away. So to add to that tower defense analogy. Again, like I I, I was way too in love with uh, the, the first gen mechs, which were like my like up close combat, combat range boys. Because like punching stuff's just fun. Uh, I, I like visualizing a mech punching a robot. The funny thing is too, though the the mechs, are, the first gen mechs are great for brawling, but like with the EMP attacks and the flares, they also do a really good support work. Yeah, they're 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 actually like pretty decent to have on anti air duty, because those flares they they'll defend your what's the central tower thing called again the the like control i forget point. main terminal something like what? that yeah, yeah terminal the, the terminal yeah, yeah so you know you have a lot of enemies like launching like missile attacks towards it so those flares will like ignite them it, it's it's actually really cool and the anti-air like if you have like all three of your melee mechs you can like shoot an emp forward so all the air mechs drop to the ground and when they're on the ground, they're vulnerable to a leap attack. So, like, one of your other melee mechs can just launch himself from, like, halfway across the map. And, like, the shockwave will basically blow up all those mechs. I don't know why you're not always carrying around melee mechs. The other ones are good, too. I had a Chie character. Not to oh, know. boy. Not to know. Uh, I had upgraded her with Missile Rain, which eats up a lot of, like mp but like boy it's a rain of missiles yeah that, that, that's what i was talking about earlier just like seeing that like seeing a bunch of just like the little worker ant kaiju coming in like nope we're not coming anymore because you're about to get blown the hell up yeah like like because it, it shoots out in a cone and that cone can cover like a good half to quarter of the map and like once you press confirm on that it is just like missile city baby if there wasn't such a like super good compelling story that was part of this game that mech mode could have been kind of its own separate thing because there was actually a lot going on for that for, for for a mode that was kind of relatively simplistic and felt like a little tacked on there were like pilot skills that you would unlock as you leveled up and that led to like synergy between other pilots like if you brought Natsuno and Miura around in the same battle and Miura attack first and Natsuno would be able to get a bonus on her attack and there were a lot of synergies in the pilots there were um weapons that you could upgrade um to various skill levels eventually you got stat bonuses as well where you can upgrade the armor the health the attack not to mention that the terminals themselves had power that you could um you could upgrade along the way and like 
it's 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 a pretty dense system. Like I always like never knew where to spend my points. I never thought like I really ever got enough to do everything I wanted to do. And it even like it even like limits the amount of pilots that you can bring to each battle because you know again uh, as part of the the lore of the game is that the pilots can't battle for too long before they have to take a rest or otherwise it will like destroy their brains irreparable brain uh, damage yes. yeah which doesn't sound like a good thing um so that's how they kind of limit you using the same pilots over and over and over again so you you even have to take that into consideration as well so yeah like if, if there wasn't if there wasn't like a story that i, I wanted to rush not rush through but i wanted to get back to as soon as possible i i, I almost feel like the game the mech part of it it it, it, it kind of does a little bit of a disservice to it because i feel like I would play that mech game if it was presented in a different game, so to speak, because it did, it did feel like by the end of it, I was getting I was getting into it, but again, I just wanted to see the story play out, and like I have I have pretty much zero like um, motivation to go back to it to play that that mode, but because um, yeah, it does yeah. unlock a new uh, mode after you beat the game, and I've heard that you, there are hundreds of levels. It's it's supposed to be uh, procedurally generated, so like you could. If you really like the mode, uh, you, you can go back to it. I, I I thought it would have been a real neat idea to like just release that procedural mode, like as like a downloadable on like a eShop or, or VR like, training. Yeah, kind, yeah, VR tra- like VR mode for like Metal Gear, right? Because it's uh, also uh, I I can't you know I can't get through a podcast but without mentioning without me mentioning like music in the game. And I think the battle themes in the destruction mode is some of my favorite music for a game in 2020. I bought the soundtrack. Yeah. Uh... The soundtrack's phenomenal. And I, I'm, I'm looking at the list of uh, themes specifically for the destruction mode. The, the, the title of each track is, I believe, some sort of chemical compound go on to make like RNA and DNA. Like my favorite track, uh, Isoleucine, I think is like the most like get hyped, get in a mech because it's anime and punch the giant thing. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll link it to you guys because it, it is, I, 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 I think I, I play, I probably play the battle mode just so I could listen to that track and get hype for punching robots. That's how I feel about Seaside Vacation. Like... That was that was like my favorite moment from the destruction mode is like the this cheery eighties pop song coming on while you're blasting the hell out of uh, alien robots. This is this has nothing to do with uh Thirty Sentinels, but in Metal Gear Solid Four, you got an iPod. I would annoy my friends watching me play by taking the i equipping the iPod and putting on like anime girl J pop while you know, Solid Snake is, like, viciously, like, killing, like, enemy militants. Uh, maybe I'll upload that clip to YouTube one day. I have to ask a very important question to each of you. Uh, Joe, you, why don't you go first, and then Luis. Uh, favorite platonic character and favorite romantic character? I think um, Shinonome, though, is my favorite platonic character, because I think her story is... I think kind of, like, it, it, again, it's one, of those, it's like one of those tropey things, right? Where it's just like, here's this character, it's like, oh, she has amnesia, and she doesn't know what's going on, and 
to tell me an anime that doesn't have someone with amnesia trying to figure out what's going on, right? But then to kind of find out that, you know, her arc of, like, discovering that, like, oh, some version of herself actually was the one who caused all of this, and kind of her dealing with that, and just kind of everything with, like, her memory falling apart in a way that that's presented in the game. And then to find out that, like, oh, the medicine she's taking is actually, it's not to harm her, it's actually the only thing kind of keeping her brain intact. I, I thought it was, like, a revelation, too, because you think that all the medicine everyone's taking in the game is, like, that's, that's the bad medicine, they're using that to, like, you know, harm them, but actually, no, that's the only thing that's kind of keeping her memories intact. So I thought, I thought, I thought she was kind of, oh, she's one of my favorite characters there. And as far as uh, a waifu type character, I'm going to go with Natsuna. I think she, everything about her is pretty rad. The whole, I just, I just, the whole like love for sci-fi stuff. Um, and just kind of the, the never ending kind of cheery attitude from her. Um, I think she rocks. And I think Yuki also is. I'm gonna throw it in there as well. But <laughs> yeah. it might, it might, it might, but it might be because I just like the the delinquent kind of uh, character uh, archetype as well. I just, I just want a character that that exactly that, that exactly. You just shove a fist through my face. Kind of. <laughs> Luis, who would you like to shove a fist through your face? Oh, uh, you know, just any line up everyone, anyone listening, to take a shot. But <laughs> if if I got if I. So platonic character, I, hands down, it's, it's my boy Ogata, uh, who is the other delinquent character in the game, because he is like such a lovable like oaf type, and also <laughs> he does so in in the battle mode. All all the characters have like these shouts, these barks that like kind of get repetitive, like the amount of times I've heard like uh, I'm acting like an amateur is uh too much to count but ogata's is my favorite because it's also a best my best philosophy for enjoying this game is like no point in overthinking it and like yeah you're right ogata just like this game is absolutely like i tend to like get into critique mode and this game is like no exception but i had to learn how to turn that off for this game and just like Enjoy this roller coaster of stuff because it's gonna move at you a mile a minute. I uh, and Ogata's philosophy is like just don't don't overthink it, dude. Just, just go and punch punch something if you gotta. You know, get angry at stuff. Just feel emotional. Like he he just seemed to embody that the most. I also thought he had like the most uh, enjoyable interactions with other characters because everyone else saw him for like the big doof that he was. As far as uh, romantic, as as far as uh, best waifu, best girl, uh, well, if you if you if you're forcing me to answer this question, I I would have said uh, Natsuno as well, because she's the most like chie from Persona Four. But actually, I'm thinking about it, and you know what, Miwako is probably best girl. She's not even a real girl; she's AI. But I want to protect her. She's precious. She she doesn't know any better, and literally. Universal Control will not let her know better. No, she couldn't know better. But even even though she didn't know better, like, towards, like, the end of the game when, like, the city's falling apart, like, she finds the Chihiro, like, little girl version of it. And she's like, oh, where are your parents? Follow me. I'll protect you, little girl. I'm like, oh, Miwako, you got a big heart. You just want boys to like you. It's, she, she's entirely boy crazy. But none of the boys notice her either. I just want to protect her, is all. I just want to give her an ice cream and tell her everything's going to be okay. Or a crepe, or a, a hot dog, or... <laughs> like, yeah. 
There's a, there's an achievement for getting all the foods in the game. <laughs> is, is there an is there an achievement for trying to get the cat over twenty times? <laughs> oh God! Because <laughs> it should have been. It's the most the most like a bad adventure game that game could have been. Is like you get you gotta stand close to the cat, but not far enough away from your friends where you can't talk to them, because if that happens, the cat gets scared. So you gotta do like five minutes of dialogue over again good thing you got a fast forward button but if you screw it up the next time you gotta do it again that might be the worst part of the entire game right there is like yeah. navigating that it's the only part i had to look up a walkthrough for because i was like God, am i is this am i doing something is there a konami code that i'm missing or something uh no it turns out i'm not an idiot i mean i might be an idiot but not in this instance this is this this particular part of the game was dumb and i'm mad at it i should just be enjoying miwachan's company well i can tell you what's not dumb or rather who's not dumb because my favorite platonic uh character was goto maybe like less for his personality because like he's one of those of the many characters who comes off like ooh, i don't really know what his deal is but actually turns out to be like a really good guy and like i appreciate that he was the the person smart enough to be like there is a lot of, like, memory loss and time traveling here. I'm going to write this in a notebook. And, like, yeah. that's his superpower <laughs> is he writes things down. Uh, yeah, he, he does follow that, like, anime trope of, like, star student. Or, like, he's good at athletics and he's charming and he's the head of, he's, like, the class president. And he kind of uh, pushes glasses to his face at some point. Like, there, there, there was a Digimon character that was just like that character in uh, my hero academia that is that guy so like when he was like that i like immediately didn't want to like him uh but then like his narrative ends up being closer to like a detective story than any of the others and just like being able to write crap down is like all right this guy all right you know you're you're you're, you're not all flash you, you you're actually someone i can get behind yeah good platonic choice and as far as uh romantic uh I, I can't differentiate too much here uh, with respect to not to know like uh, Yuki was someone like I, I really liked her, her spirit and her, uh, her hutzpah. And maybe this is contaminating things too much, but like I, she was my favorite character in destruction. Like I would just like fly around and like leg spike everything in sight. And I was like, yes, you're a cutie and you, you punch things real good. I love she had like one of the most amazing reveals of the game when you find out that like twenty one eighty eight version of her is um, Natsuno's mom. Yeah. Um, so then you find out, oh, that's why there's like this built in protection that like she's like so, you know, they were best friends, but it's, it, it's kind of more beyond that as well, where it's like some of that maternal protection somehow got you know into her personality as well. So I thought that was like a really like cool like oh that's really 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 awesome the way that they tie those. Two characters together. All right, guys. I think we got time for one each. Favorite moment. Or if not favorite moment, a favorite moment, if you don't want to pick. I'll, I'll go first because I wrote down a bunch of things. Uh, this will be this will definitely be a favorite moment because um, I have so many of them. But when you find out that, that BJ is actually Miro's AI from the Sentinel, what, one or two loops ago? And, and he's basically trying to recover the rest of his memories. So that plays into, like, the Natsuno Miyoto relationship. It plays into, 
you know, unraveling more of this mystery. And then when you find out that, like, he eventually has to, like, shut himself down to play the final um, file because there's not enough, there's literally not enough memory in his little drone unit to keep his AI in there. It was, like, a really sad moment in the game. And, and I, and yeah, like that, that, that whole revelation I thought was, like, really, really cool. Like, that's a, a cool way to, um, uh, to show where Mirror's AI sort of ended up. I can go with one here if I can just remember it. Oh, yes. Uh, Hijiyama, he, uh, you know, he spent a lot of his uh, time in his route getting money for Yakisoba Pan. There's one point where he gets like a bunch of Yakisoba Pan. And then when you go to his thought cloud, it's like just four Yakisoba Pans. Eat all the Yakisoba Pans. Eat eat all of them, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's my thought cloud right now. And as the screen's fading out, he pulls out another one and starts eating that one. His whole story made me want to find... I don't know where to get Yakisoba Pan in Chicago, but I will find it. I think you'd have to go out to, like, Tenske Market. I'm pretty sure I, I might have to make it my own. Because it's just too good. It's too heavenly. <laughs> there's there's no Yakisoba Pan angel around here that I can go to. Uh, as far as my favorite moments, I've already talked about a lot of them. Uh, um, I think one of my favorite personal moments is at in the epilogue of the game after they all wake up from their pods and start like establishing like humanity again, they go, they restore central control and, and the simulation. Right. And you know, they're, they're, they're back in their like teenage bodies interacting with like the characters they left behind. And then Ogata, uh, runs into like Wajima you know, the other delinquent that everyone else like would beat up. And Wajima's only deal was just to be a troublemaker, right? He was like, hey, I ain't got, we ain't done here. Let's fight right now. And in the fiction of the game, it has been five years since Ogata had seen the simulation of Wajima. And then Wajima says like, hey, where you been? I've been waiting for you here. And Ogata starts tearing up saying like, man, you've, You've been waiting for me this entire time. That's the most beautiful shit I ever heard. <laughs> and then, like, Wajima's, like, reaction, like, oh, dude, are are you okay? It's like, th- this is actually going to cause them to actually have a friendship now. Like, this moment. Yeah, like, <laughs> and uh, and also, like, the game implies that, like, hey, we're working on... Like, we figured out cloning, and we know how to put digital memories into actual memories, so why can't we just create bodies for these AI people and give them a chance to experience humanity? So, like, <laughs> the the sequel in my brain stars Wajima, <laughs> like, grappling with, like, wait, like, the only reason I wanted to beat you up because I was programmed to? And, like, you actually like me? And I'm a farmer now? What? Yeah, I, I just thought that was just, like, a... For all, like, the sci-fi bullshit that this game throws at you, it's always, like, those little human moments that resonate the most with me. And this game is full of them. That's just the one that I like the most. Joe, I apologize. If you wanted to throw in a few more moments, I can just, like, tuck them in. Be happy to have you get a couple more in there. I, you know, I don't I don't, I don't, don't have a... I don't, I don't know if it's necessarily a moment, but there is there is one kind of, like, I guess... One, one criticism I have about the game... Uh, I know we've been all glowing about it and talking positive about it. There is one thing that that kind of like makes me feel like, yeah, it's a good thing or not. So Sakasa Okina is is it's presented as as non-binary in the game, right? Um, which is so 
Like, his character in the 40s dressed as a woman and presented himself as a woman. Hijiyama, one of the characters, ends up falling, um, falling for her. And later revealed that, like, oh, actually, you know, it was him cross-dressing. But also, like, it's also revealed that, like, Hijiyama and Okino from 2188 had a, um, had a gay relationship as well. So this is sort of, like, that relationship existing in the simulation, which, like, is really cool. And, like, it's a really cool moment that it's, it's not presented as, like, anything weird or, or out of the ordinary. Just, like, in a game that has a bunch of people hooking up. Because, uh, like, let's face it, like, everyone hooks up in this game. And and, and so, like, on the surface, it's like, this is a cool representation moment. And, and, and especially for, you know, Japanese RPGs don't always have the best kind of track record when it comes to presenting any kind of LGBTQ um, representation. But, like, some of the stuff in the ending, like, when they when they go back to the simulation, like, it left it, like, kind of murky and cloudy of, like, wait, was was o- Okina, uh, uh, Okina, was he always, you know... Uh, sorry, were, were they always sort of doing this because they are, you know, non-binary or gender fluid or because they want to do it? Or is it like, I couldn't tell if it was a joke or not, basically at the end, at the end of the day. And and I think that sort of like left just a little bit of a sour taste in my mouth of like, mm, I mean, I wish they like really leaned into it more where they like outright either confirmed that they were like in a relationship in the current timeline or they didn't leave it like mysterious enough where you could interpret it uh any other way because yeah i agree with you joe because yeah it, it was it because it, like i said it did it, it a very cool moment and, and especially for you know i know this game wasn't developed by atlas but you know some of the persona games don't always have the best again don't have the best track record when it comes to presenting lgbtq characters and so i thought this was a this it, it could still be a cool moment it's just i just it just leaves just enough doubt in your mind where you can't be entirely sure if it is or not the, the the majority of that game, you know, that relationship between uh, Okino and, uh, how do you say his name? Hijiyama. Hijiyama. Yeah, uh, like Hijiyama, they're obviously playing off of, like, kind of Hijiyama's, like, own internal, like, repression. And, like, they're playing it for laughs, and, you know, that is what it is. Um, I, I I thought it worked mostly well enough. Uh, you're And you're right, like, some of these games don't have the best track record with lgbtq and by the end of it you know i was hoping that they would like land one way or another with that relationship uh but at the end they they're still playing it for a joke and that didn't sit well with me like i'm 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 personally like not queer or like you know like substantially like lgbtq uh but i consider myself an ally and like i i wondered like how would my like queer friends see that you know it's not i don't think it's great I think they could have done better, uh, but again, like as far as the game goes, like it's—I I guess it's—it's it's a wonder that we got any representation at all. In the best light, this is a very good example, at least I think of it, of of, of having a representation and not playing most of it off as jokes or yeah. or or just kidding. Actually, they were straight all along, and this whole time you thought you know they were you know that they were in a gay relationship. Actually, no, it's not. It's just he just were just—they thought it was funny. He thought he thought messing with Hichiyama was a funny thing to do. So I'm hoping that's not the case. But yeah, so yeah. That, that's sort of um, like I said, not 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 exactly. It's just a critical moment I've had with, I had with the game with for for a game that I, I pretty much kind of also uh, generally universally um, like. Besides that, it was too bad. I I, I mean I agree. I th- I think that uh, you know I th- my read on it was that Okino was somewhat uncomfortable with their own identity and like the flirting and the teasing was like part of expressing that and like was hoping 
that Hijiyama at some point would be like, I, I like you, whoever you are, whoever you, uh, yeah, whoever you are. And it didn't, like, there were times where it seems like Okino was trying to get that reaction out of Hijiyama and wouldn't and was kind of disappointed. I'm like, oh, okay, that's kind of, that's some depth. I, like, I kind of get that. But then, yeah, like lots of gay panic, not a lot of gay pan- panic jokes, but some gay panic jokes. And even the part where, like, you see in the in the 2188 timeline that they were in love, they were both men and in love with each other. Part of me is like, well, was that okay because they both died? They couldn't have them be in a happy uh, homosexual relationship if they were both alive at the end. Yes, yeah, just another tragic gay lovers trope. Yeah, like, like, because, like I got the same impression as like, oh, they couldn't quite pull the trigger on them saying like, we are both men and we both love each other. Like, it seemed to like sort of almost imply like Tamau was like in the mix somehow. I, I read that online too, where people said like they they at the end of it it, it, it implied that Hijiyama and, and Tamau were they were the ones who were actually in a relationship or were teasing that. I, I didn't personally get that. Like I always thought that Hijiyama and Tamau were hundred percent platonic. Maybe yeah, they they could have been because like you know they lived in the same era in the simulation, so they may still be friends from that. But it did it like the fact that I can even like look at that and think like maybe, and then compared to like where. I feel like there should be like an iron lock uh, love relationship between the two men. It's like, ah, that's not, that's not good. Yeah. Especially like I said, in, in a game where everyone was hooking up left and right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, what, anything else? Anything else? Uh, did you guys platinum the game? Nah. No. <laughs> guys, it's like, it takes I, two hours. I promise. It took I, me two hours I after I finished. I don't platinum games. Yeah, I I generally don't go back unless I know it's like one or two trophy. Maybe, maybe I'll take a look and see what I'm missing. Listen, I got too, too much Yu-Gi-Oh! Duel Links to be playing. Yeah, uh, I, I generally don't plan them games. Uh, but I, I I had thought about uh, uh, going back to this game and, and you know, doing some of the uh, procedurally generated stuff because I, I do like that combat quite a bit and, you know, might enjoy a part of that where it's a sandbox uh, just so I could mess around with it, because uh, I, I do think it's interesting, and I don't I don't know if I need more story out of it. It just kind of I I know I want it, but I don't think it needs to happen. At some point, I was actually legitimately considering breaking out um, a corkboard, cutting out people's character portraits, and doing the whole strings and 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 thumbtacks because like there's a there's a a lot of, like it, the game does not present anything in a linear fashion, and even when you go through like the encyclopedia. Even though it presents it in a linear fashion, it still makes like not that much sense when you go through it that way. So like, I need to see like everything happening at any given time, what's happening with a certain character in a certain loop, and like I I was like very severely tempted to do that. Maybe, Listen, maybe my my man Ogata has got some words of advice for you. <laughs> <laughs> no point in overthinking it, man. So I probably shouldn't overthink the the last thing. I promise this will be the last thing. The secret extra ending scene you both have seen it right yeah what are you talking about <laughs> oh okay, well, oh boy oh boy all right so i'm sorry Luis. we're just gonna tell you get in it let's okay. do it I, I might know what you're talking about oh okay so at the if you go to the flow chart the event flow chart after you beat the game and roll credits there's one scene at the very very bottom it just talks about hey there's infinite possibilities for humanity in the stars and beyond. And if you look at it, 
it shows you going from the planet where our characters have settled to another planet in another galaxy and shows the simulation starting up there. It's got Natsuno and Nenji and they're like, oh my God, the the aliens are here. What are we going to do? You know, naturally implying this same scenario is playing out all over the universe. And it's, and, and, it, and it's the role that, it's the line that Juro and um, Fuyasaka originally said, so it's like the exact same scene from the beginning of the game, but it's, instead of those two characters, yeah, it's, it's it's Ogata and Natsuno instead. So yes, implying that there are multiple arcs out there, potentially more than one planet that has been terraformed, and that these events are playing out, but with slight variations on them. And the thing is, like, there's there's a lot of things you could take from this, but one that I take is... You know, based on the the travel and where they're landing, our characters could have lived and prospered and their civilization could have burned out. And this is just getting started because it could be millions, thousands of light years away. So it could be millions of years after that entire world has stopped existing. They could be sending their own people into space to have Arc 2 or something. Yeah, they could do that. (laughs) So, yeah, I just wanted to mention that. (laughs) Uh, but yeah if you haven't seen it you should definitely make sure to check out that little extra nugget there at the end which clearly implies there will be like you can confirm this on this podcast there will be a 13 sentinels too and it will be about that game about that world yep it's a hot scoop yep we got it Mm -hmm. you know I, i want to apologize to the listeners here because the fact is we could go for another three hours talking about moments and characters and plot and all that. But we, we just have to call it here. And if we didn't talk about your favorite moment or whatever, that was not for lack of interest on our part. Believe me, we want to cover more, but there's just so much ground to cover. I'm getting hoarse. You could hear it. Uh, so Joe, Luis, thank you very much for uh, taking the time to record this with me. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me over. Uh, before we go, do you guys want to give any plugs on where people can find you online or like where people can see your work if you want them to see it? Uh, sure. So um, if you want, you can follow me on Twitter at Sir Brosef. That's S-E-R-B-R-O-S-E-P-H. I'm glad I got that out right the first time. I also am uh, actually just started streaming a couple months ago um, and am really enjoying that. Um, I'm streaming a bunch of horror games. So if you want to follow me on Twitch, twitch.tv slash Um I stream Tuesday and Thursday. I'm doing Bloodborne right now, um, which is Congrats great. Congrats on beating been... Viker Amelia. Yes, yes, thank you, thank you. That was a, a really good moment uh, to take that down. So if you want to check me out on Twitch on the streaming side, twitch.tv slash Serbrosev. Oh, uh, it's it's my turn. Uh, yeah, you can follow me at agent underscore Eli. I have some, I have some good tweets. Check them out. Uh, also, I am still doing work for the Onion. Uh, I I recommend the sections I work for American Voices, uh, and uh, the OGN, which is the the Onion's kind of gamer news parody uh, subsection. Uh, we've, we've been getting some really funny stuff out there. Uh, I can't tell you what stuff I've written. So if you think it's funny, just assume it was me. Yeah. And also, uh, I'm, I'm going to get back into streaming soon. I've been really into escape from Tarkov. So I might, but I might be streaming that, but also I think it'd be really fun to stream a whole bunch of FMV games. 
So that's as soon as I figure out how to do that, buckle up, everyone. Awesome, guys. Well, uh, just one more time. My name is Bill, but I go by so many bits. Uh, we do this podcast. Uh, you know, it's been kind of uh, dormant for a little while, but I really wanted to jump back in here to talk about 13 Sentinels. You can find the archives on, you know, iTunes, uh, Spotify, uh, I'm on uh, Simplecast. Uh, you know, I'm on Twitter at so many bits. You can email me at so many bits podcast at gmail.com. I stream on Twitch as well. I'm so many bits there. I'm on every Wednesday and Thursday night, 8 a.m., 8 a.m., 8 p.m. Central. Wednesdays usually for single player experiences, Thursdays for multiplayer. I've also been dabbling a little bit on Saturday afternoons. But uh, yeah, if you enjoyed this, there's literally hundreds of other episodes, some other spoiler casts, also interviews with indie game devs that are a big focus of the podcast. So just uh, thank you very much for listening. Have a great summer.